You can't have your cake and eat it too. Now, I don't know who said it, and I'm not sure that's the best way to say it, but we get the idea. You know, sometimes we have to make a choice. We can't save a piece of cake and eat it at the same time. We've got to do one or the other. And if we choose one thing in life, sometimes the other is excluded. That's just the nature of things. We, we can't have it both ways. There are a lot of things like that in life because, again, making a choice usually excludes the option. Now, obviously, there are some exceptions. You can have both butter and sour cream on your baked potato, but you can't make two things the most treasured thing in your life. You can't keep your eyes focused on two things at the same time. And you can't have two masters. Jesus makes this clear when he speaks of two treasures, two visions, and two masters in the Sermon on the Mount. We begin with a look at two treasures. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Now, the word translated lay up comes from a word for treasure. So, Jesus is actually saying, don't treasure up for yourselves treasures. On the earth. It carries with it the idea of laying things horizontally, of of stacking them up, of hoarding them. Jesus isn't saying that we can't value things of earth. God has given us many material blessings to enjoy and, and to receive with gratitude. We can even treasure them as a steward would treasure something of great value entrusted to him. What he is saying is that those things cannot become the most important things in our life. They cannot become the things we treasure most, that we treasure as though our life consisted of things we possess. Now, to do this is not only foolish spiritually, it's just plain foolish. It doesn't make sense to build our happiness on the things we can lose. And we can lose every material thing we possess. And someday we will lose them, okay? We don't take them with us. Well, Jesus begins... By noting what can happen to the things that the ancients valued even more than we do. Their clothing. Their clothing. Now, we're caught up with clothes. But it really doesn't compare to the ancients. You remember when Elisha refused to take something for healing Naaman of leprosy? His servant ran after Naaman and concocted a story about two Bible college students in need. 
And he did so, so he could get two new outfits and a little bag of silver for himself. And it was a Babylonian mantle or a jacket, a beautifully embroidered jacket that, that caught Achan's eye after Jericho fell. They were ordered to take nothing. Everything belonged to God, but he couldn't resist. He coveted that beautiful garment along with a little silver and gold. And it ended up costing the nation the victory at the next town, Ai. Clothes. They have a way of, of capturing our mind. Look at the ads we see constantly. It's always clothes and new clothes. And I don't understand why my wife keeps wanting me to get different kinds of clothes. You know, I really like button-down shirts, honey. You know. But clothes can obsess us. They sometimes identify us. And they were highly valued. Highly valued 2,000 years ago, the average person actually only had one outer garment. You've noticed I have two or three jackets, okay? They only had one outer garment and two undergarments. That's it for the average person. Now, a wealthy person had closets, if they had closets. They had tons of clothes, but they didn't have mothballs. So even those expensive purple garments were continually being eaten away when they weren't being worn. Clothes didn't last. And while it was necessary to store up some gain, uh, grain for a season, like the industrious ant of Proverbs, to hoard great quantities of grain only invited mice and rats for lunch. And the word translated rust here actually means eating away. And that's how it was interpreted by, by the early centuries. Something that you kept, that just kept getting eaten away. And, you know, even hoarding things that don't rust. Hoarding gold and, and silver can become foolish. And it was foolish in that day because it invited thieves who would literally dig through the clay walls of a house and steal it. The Greeks even called burglars mud diggers. It's kind of interesting. Bottom line, nothing, nothing could be treasured on earth and be kept safe. Only those things that were treasured up in heaven were secure. Moths, rust, or gnawing rodents and thieves couldn't get to heavenly treasure. So Jesus says, lay them up in heaven. So how do we do that? How do we do that? Now, obviously, we can't go to the bank of heaven and make deposits. We can, however, use material possessions in such a way that they become spiritual treasures. We can give them to those in need in the name of Christ. We can invest them in kingdom work. And, and either way would be to transfer assets from an earthly account to a heavenly account. We can also lay up treasures in heaven through good works. Now, we don't earn salvation with our good works. We understand that. But Scripture does indicate that our good works will follow us. Works that follow our salvation will follow us in 
to the future and be rewarded in heaven. Now, I don't know how that's all going to work out, but I think God will think of something. We will be rewarded. The bottom line is Jesus just wants our heart. And whatever we invest our money and our time in is where our heart will be. And it cannot be in two places at the same time. If we treasure up treasures on earth, that's where our heart will be. If we treasure up treasures in heaven, that's where our heart will be. We can't have it both ways. We've got to choose between two treasures. And we've got to choose between two visions, two ways of looking at life. Let's continue. The lamp of the body is the eye. If, therefore, your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If, therefore, the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. Jesus is here talking about the way we see things in life. He says our vision is either clear or distorted. And the underlying thought is that we have a choice in the matter. If our eye is clear, our whole body will be full of light. The word translated clear actually means single. It refers to an eye that is accurately focused on one spot. If the eye itself is good, it focuses the light that comes into it on one spot. And it gives us an accurate image. If, however, we have astigmatism and our lens is distorted, we get multiple images and nothing is clear. Now, in Jesus' day, they had little choice about that. If it was bad, there was little they could do. Obviously, we now have corrective lenses and LASIK surgery, and no one would choose to have eyes that are out of focus. Lots of you have had eye surgery. Char just had eye surgery this week, before next week. We want our eyes to see clearly. But even if our eyes are good, we can still get a distorted view of life by not focusing on the right things. If we focus on the light of God's Word, we will see things as they really are. Our perceptions of life will be true. But if we let our eyes be blinded by the God of this world, who, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, so they may not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, we will be in darkness, and it will be great darkness. And if we try to focus on both the light and the darkness, we'll see neither clearly, because it is impossible to focus on two things at the same time. I, I found that to be true when shooting a pistol. You can't focus on the back sight, the front sight, and the target at the same time. You just cannot do it. If you want to hit the target, you've got to stay focused on the front sight. On the front sight. 
And if we want to hit the target in life, we've got to stay focused on the right sight. We've got to keep our eyes focused on Jesus. We look at that sight, we hit the target. We look at too many things, we're all over the place. That's the way it works. That's the way it works. You know, I kind of like the way A.T. Robertson talks about this in his word pictures in the New Testament. He says, if our eyes are healthy, we see clearly and with a single focus. If the eyes are diseased, they may even be cross-eyed or cockeyed. We see double and confuse our vision. We keep one eye on the hoarded treasure of earth and roll the other proudly up to heaven. That's weird. That's weird. And you know, if we try to focus on both the things of earth and the things of heaven, we'll end up spiritually cross-eyed. We cannot do it. We have to make a choice. Are we going to keep our eyes on the things of heaven or the things of earth? We cannot have it both ways. We have to choose between two treasures, two visions, and ultimately two masters. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. It's impossible to serve two masters. You know, you might be able to work for two employers and please one for a number of hours a day and the other for the rest of the day, but a master had control 24 hours a day. 365 days a year. So there is no way you could really serve two masters. Even if you were owned by two masters, you really couldn't be a slave to both of them. You'd have to choose which one to obey when orders came into conflict. You'd have to choose whom to serve. And in doing so, would find yourself out of service to the other. And eventually, Jesus says, you'd find yourself holding to one and despising the other, maybe even loving one and hating the other. He says, that's why we cannot serve God and mammon. Mammon. Now, that's an interesting word. That's an interesting word with a fascinating history. It comes from a root word meaning to entrust and originally referred to the wealth a man entrusted to someone else for safekeeping. Over the years, it shifted in meaning from that which is entrusted to that in which a man puts his trust. And eventually, it was personified and came to be regarded as a god, spelled with a capital M, mammon. The money god. Now, there's no evidence that there was actually an ancient god named Mammon who was worshipped. But Mammon did make his way into Christian literature of the Middle Ages as a demon. 
and was a fallen angel in Paradise Lost. He can even be found in video games today and is the archdevil who rules over one of the nine layers of hell in Dungeons and Dragons. Now, I don't know those things by experience, but I read them. I also read that according to Wikipedia, Mammon is often portrayed as a personification of greed and lust. Now, whether Jesus actually had in mind the money god, the personification of greed, or simply money itself, when he used the word mammon, we don't know. But we certainly understand what he was getting at. We cannot let the pursuit of riches take over our life. We can't serve God and money. The Apostle Paul made clear the danger in trying to get rich in 1 Timothy 6, 9 and 10. He says, but those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. And some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierce themselves with many a pang. It's pretty straightforward. It's the love of money, not money itself, but the love of money that's the root of all evil. If that becomes our objective, we lose. Bottom line, we lose. Now, I happened to read a blogger this week. Found it on the internet, of course. K.W. Leslie. I have no idea who or she or whatever. I don't know anything. But I like what he had to say about mammon. So I want to see what's current thinking on mammon. Listen to this. The reason why Christians have taken such an interest in mammon and created such interesting myths about it is because, especially nowadays, it's God's spiritual competition. People put their faith in money. They expect money to solve their problems, achieve their dreams, secure their futures, conquer their foes, give them health and give them peace. And if you can afford to be frozen cryogenically, Money will even offer you an afterlife. <laughs> I thought that was brilliant. Brilliant. He had more to say. And he concluded his blog with this. He said, the more time we put into money, accumulating and managing it, the more value we put in money over God. The wealthy have to make an extra effort to keep their money from affecting their relationship with God. They have to fight money's spiritual force. They have to give more away. They have to be more generous. They have to fight the tendency to hoard or trust their bank accounts to save them rather than God. It is hard for rich people to live in the kingdom. But with God, everything is possible. If money is a friendship, 
you can't part with for the sake of the kingdom, something you can't leave behind to follow Jesus, you may as well admit it's your master. And as Jesus said, you can't serve both. I have no idea who he is, but that's good. That's good. You know, I often hear parents encouraging their children to make good choices. Obviously, adults need to do the same thing. There are life-altering choices with eternal consequences that we all have to make. And Jesus boiled them down to this. We have to choose between two treasures, two visions, and two masters. We can't have it both ways. So what will it cost me to follow the Lord? Everything. All that I own, all that I am, all that I love. That's the commitment to which Jesus is calling us today. What are you going to choose? Who are you going to serve?